morning. So good to see everybody on this Easter morning. His death took care of our sin and his resurrection gives us life. It is good to be alive in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2. We're going to look at an, an event in the life of Jesus that most of us are probably pretty familiar with, but we're going to look at it in a little different light this morning and how it relates to what we are celebrating today. <clears throat> the Gospel of John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13, so let's all stand together as we read the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves he said take these things away stop making my father's house a place of business his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answers, answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. God, I call on you right now through your spirit, through the blood of Jesus that allows me to come directly before your throne. God, by your grace and your mercy, I ask you to open our eyes this morning to see truth, to see you for who you really are. God, I pray that today would not be just another routine Easter celebration that we leave here completely unchanged by. But Lord, I pray that today will be a defining moment in somebody's life. God, that it would be a defining moment even in this church. And God, that we will be transformed by the power of your grace and mercy and love. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Now, the story we just read is one of the more well-known uh, events that happened in Jesus' ministry. And I think what makes it stand out is the fact that it records a moment that seems to be pretty much out of character for Jesus. I mean, everything he, else that he did seemed to be bathed with so much compassion and, and mercy and love. He was either healing someone of a disease or sickness or he was loving on an outcast or performing some type of miracle on someone's behalf. But this event is unique because here he is expressing this outburst of anger. What's up with that? I chose this text for the Easter message because what Jesus did here wasn't just about the temple building. It was about something much greater, much bigger. He was symbolically illustrating the implications of what he was about to do. He was showing what his death and resurrection would accomplish, what it would mean for those who would put their trust in him for salvation. 
Although John records this at the beginning of his gospel, that doesn't mean that this is where it happened chronologically in the life of Jesus. The other three gospels, they record this same event, but they have theirs towards the end. And all three of them have it uh, happening right after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is what we just celebrated last Sunday with, with Palm Sunday. The reason why John puts his account of this where he does in his gospel is because John was a little bit different than the other three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were more about focusing on the things that Jesus did, whereas John had the perspective of who Jesus was and what he was about. And so for him to put this event as near to the beginning here as he does, he is making a statement that what Jesus did here says a whole lot about who he was and what he was about. You see, the the temple was the epicenter of Jewish culture. It was the most important thing in their religion. King Solomon originally had it built a thousand years before this, and he built it in order to house the manifest presence of God on earth. Now, when we talk about God's presence, there's really two ways that his presence uh, is, is with us. There's, first of all, his omnipresence, which means it's just that he is everywhere all the time, And then there is his manifest presence, which is a tangible, powerful aspect of his being existing somewhere. And his manifest presence, when it shows up, things happen. It has an impact on the environment around him. For the manifest presence of holy God to reside on earth with fallen man was a very, very big deal. And God wanted to make sure that we knew just how big of a deal it was. And so he gave specific instructions as to how his temple was going to be built. And I'm telling you, it was absolutely magnificent. I'm going to look back in in 2 Chronicles here. You don't have to flip back if you don't want to. It's going to be up on the screen. Just to give you a a small uh, description of what the temple was like. It's talking about how King Solomon built it. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, starting in verse 5, it says, He overlaid the main room of cypress wood and overlaid it with fine gold and ornamented it with palm trees and chains. Further, he adorned the house with precious stones, and the gold was gold from Parvaim. He also overlaid the house with gold, the beams, the thresholds, and its walls and its doors, and he carved cherubim on the walls. Now he made the room... Of the Holy of Holies, this was the actual inner room where the very presence of God resided. Its length across the width of the house was 20 cubits, which is about 30 feet, and its width was 20 cubits. And he overlaid it with fine gold, amounting to 600 talents. Now, the equivalent in today's measurement in pounds, that that was roughly a little over 22 tons of gold used just in that small room, in the Holy of Holies. And then it says the weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he also overlaid the upper rooms with gold. So just the nails themselves that fastened everything together were made of solid gold and weighed over a pound each. And this is just one small part of the temple. It was a large structure, and it was just this, uh, just 
magnificent all over it. Nothing like this had ever been seen in the world at that time. And word of its splendor spread to other nations and people started coming from all over just to lay their own eyes on it. Later on in chapter 9 of Second Chronicles, it says that the queen of Sheba came up and she was from one of the most wealthiest nations in the world at that time. She wanted to see it for herself, so she came up and verse 4 says that when she saw the temple, she was left absolutely breathless. Everyone who saw the temple, they knew that because of how magnificent it looked on the outside, that there had to be something special in there on the inside. There was something powerful going on here. And they could tell that just by what they could see with their eyes on the outside. But as glorious as it was, the temple in the Old Testament was about something greater than even the temple itself. It was a symbolic foreshadow of what God was going to do later through Jesus. Solomon's original temple that we just read the description about, was eventually destroyed by the Babylonians. A thousand years later, um, King Herod the Great has another temple built. This is the one that Jesus entered into in this text in John 2. And it was finished right before Jesus was born to Mary. And although it looked a lot like the original, the presence of God was no longer in it like it was in Solomon's day. The manifest presence of God on earth was now, you know where it was? In Jesus. The manifest presence of God was now in the person of Jesus. And so when he entered the temple that day, it was the first time since the Babylonians destroyed the temple that the manifest presence of God was in the temple. You might think, well, if God's presence was no longer there, then why did Jesus make such a big deal about this? Why did he get so bent out of shape? Well, the people still lived under the old covenant law, which required them to make animal sacrifices at the temple in order to pay for their sins. The Passover celebration was going on, and so during the Passover, people would come from every corner of Israel come from out in the country and everywhere in Israel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And while they were there, they would make their animal sacrifices at, at, at the temple. The problem is the law required that the animal that you would sacrifice had to come from your own herd. And it couldn't be just any animal from your herd. It had to be the best of the best. And so it was a huge sacrifice in order to have to give up uh, part of your livestock Not only that, but it was also a huge sacrifice to have to drag that animal with you all over through your journey to Jerusalem just to have it killed when you got there. To be of no use to you other than offering it as as a sacrifice. And so some savvy-minded entrepreneurs came up with this brilliant idea that they would sell the animals there in the temple so that the people coming from out of town wouldn't have to drag their animals with them. It was the first convenience store because it made it very convenient for the people to be able to have the animals that they needed to sacrifice. The problem with that is that the law required it to be from their own herd. And these animals were not from their herd. And these animals probably weren't the best of the best. They were just the cheapest animals they could get to sell at a higher price. 
Not only that, but the law also required that every male who came to the temple would pay a half shekel, shekel tribute to help pay for the expenses of the temple. Problem was, everybody was dealing in Roman currency at the time. And so these money changers would be at the temple to exchange their Roman coins for shekels. But they were gouging the people because what they would give them in shekels was not near the value of what they gave in Roman currency. And so it was a racket going on in here. I mean, it was a mess. What God intended the temple to be as a place of worship turned into anything but. Rather than it being a place of God-centered worship, it had turned into a place of man-centered religion. Now notice what Jesus does when he enters the temple. The first thing he did was to expose what was going on there. See, it wasn't like the people didn't know that this was wrong, what was going on in the temple. I mean, they knew the law. They knew that they were skirting around the law, and they were looking for some little loopholes in order to meet the minimum requirement to help them get by with God. But nobody was addressing it. Nobody was saying this is wrong. They were just turning a blind eye to what was going on. But Jesus shows up, and he addresses the elephant in the room. He says, I'm not going to turn the blind eye to this. I'm calling it out for what it is. This is wrong. And he exposes it. And then look again at verse 15 in John 2. It says, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Notice that Jesus didn't stand there and preach to them and tell them how wrong they were and then tell them all the steps that they had to take in order to make things right. He didn't tell them what they all needed to do now in order to get everything out on their own. He made a scourge of cords and he took matters into his own hands and he is the one that got rid of it all. He didn't call on anybody else to come help him. He is the one that did it, which speaks what is key to what he was, uh, the message that he was sending in doing this. Then a few days after this happened, Jesus is arrested in the middle of the night. And he's taken through an illegal trial. The next morning he is severely beaten. And he has the flesh ripped from his back in ribbons with, ironically, the same type of instrument that he used to drive out the money changers, a scourge of cords. And then he's led up a hill where he's nailed to a wooden cross and left to hang there to bake in the noonday sun and drowned in his own blood. And he did all of that so that you and I wouldn't have to. He took all of our sin onto himself and absorbed God's wrath in our place. Because God is so holy, when his manifest presence shows up, it cannot allow anything sinful, anything not as holy as him into the presence. That's why in the Old Testament, it was only the high priest who could go near the manifest presence of God. And for him to do that, he had to go through this elaborate cleansing ritual. Anybody else that went in there who was not supposed to or had sin in his heart would immediately die. And so the manifest presence of God cannot be in the presence of sin. 
But the manifest presence of God was in the person of Jesus. So on the cross, when our sin came on him, the presence of God had to leave. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the second time in history, the manifest presence of God on earth wasn't here. What was left then of Jesus' life finally escaped his tortured and mangled body as he breathed his last. He's taken down and buried in a tomb. Praise God. We know that the story doesn't end there. If the story did end there, Jesus would have been nothing more than another religious fanatic who died for some lost cause. What we celebrate today is the rest of the story. The fact that three days later, he walked out of that grave. He walked out of that tomb. And he did so having accomplished the mission that he came to fulfill. The plan of God that he had had before the foundations of the world were laid, that plan was executed to absolute perfection. Death was defeated. Sin was paid for. The curse was broken. And mankind was now able to be restored back into relationship with their created creator. Praise God. But then 40 days later, Jesus ascended back to the Father. And so now what about the manifest presence of God? Is it no longer here and we're just waiting on it to come back whenever Jesus returns? No. Here's what the Old Testament was pointing, the, Old Test, the temple in the Old Testament was pointing to. The last night Jesus was with his disciples, he said something to them about what was going to happen. He was talking about um, him having to, to go away from them for a while. And in John 14, 16, he said this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. He was with them right then because he was in the person of Jesus. But then he said, and he will be in you. In you. Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is going to bring it full circle. Paul tells us exactly what the temple in the Old Testament had always been about. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the Old Testament, the manifest presence of God resided in the temple. Then it resided in the person of Jesus. Today, it resides in those whose only hope and trust is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are the, we house the manifest presence of God on earth today. 
When Jesus went into that temple that day, he was showing us what his death and resurrection would mean. In order for us to be a part of God's temple, Jesus first has to go in and expose the sin in us and then remove it. And when God begins to awaken our dead spirit and we see Jesus for who he is, the very first thing that we become uh, painfully aware of is just how sinful and wicked and rotten we really are and just how helpless we are to do anything about it. But praise God, because of his grace, Jesus doesn't expose our sin and then go, okay, now, now, now go clean yourself up. Now go through all these steps that somebody's going to come along and give you and make yourself better and then come follow me. No, just like he did in the temple, he takes matters into his own hands and he is the one that removes it from us. Too often we let the guilt and shame of our sin make us run from Christ. And he's not going to like me. I can't let him see this on me when the truth is any time that we are made aware of sin in us, the first thing it should make us do is run as fast as we can to him because he is the only one who is able to do anything about it. And when that happens, we become a part of God's temple. And now knowing what the temple in the Old Testament was all about, we can look back on it and read it from this perspective and in doing so, take some cues as to what, what it means for us to be the temple of God today. And like I said, the way that the temple looked on the outside, it let people know around there that there was something special going on on the inside. People talked about it. They were amazed by it. They came from all over just to see it with their own eyes. That's how some reacted. But there were others who reacted a different way. When they saw the temple... They hated it. They despised it. And they did everything they could to try to destroy it. You see, that's the difference between God's manifest presence and his omnipresence. His omnipresence can be here and people can be unaffected by it and completely indifferent to it. Except for the fact it's the only reason that they're breathing. But just completely oblivious to it. But the manifest presence of God, when it shows up, people cannot help but react to it in some way. And they're going to respond in one of two ways. They're either going to be drawn to it or they're going to be repulsed by it. But they cannot be indifferent to it. The fact that we are the temple of God now means that what we do on the outside, how we live, should stand out. To the rest of the world. It should make people take notice. There should be, should be something about this. The way that we live. The way people see us love God. And love one another. That makes people go. Man there's something going on in there. What we do should be either compelling. Or repulsive. I'm telling you right now. In the world around us. And even in our own country. We're starting to see some of the reaction of that that hatred towards it, more so than we have before. But if the world is indifferent to us, then we just aren't letting his presence be known. Last week I talked about how our American culture puts such an emphasis on individualism, it's hard for us to really grasp the necessity of God's people existing in community with one another. 
God's kingdom community is valued a whole lot higher than individualism is because community is the expression of his very nature. God, the gospel isn't about God saving individuals. It's primarily about him saving a people, a, a family. God is so big and so glorious and so multifaceted that it takes a big group of people in order to display him. The only person who is able to accurately display the glory of God just by himself in his own individuality was Jesus Christ. For us, it takes us coming together in community to be able to do that. And I believe that today this is something that God is really highlighting to his people right now. And because of the times that we are living in today, now it is more important than ever for the people of God to start coming together. There are things happening in the, in the world around us right now, and I know that we complain and we wring our hands and we worry about the, 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 the direction our country is going and all the things that are happening in the world around us. I mean, things are scary, and it seems like times are getting more and more dark. But I'm telling you this. God is orchestrating things according to plan. He is. And I believe that he is in the process right now of creating an opportunity for his glory to be seen in his temple in ways that it hasn't in a long time. It is an incredible time in history to be a part of God's family right now. To be a part of his temple Right now, people know that things are messed up and that they're broken. They're so discouraged because government has let them down. Systems and institutions have let them down. Religion has let them down. And they are desperately looking for anything to fix what's broken as an answer to all these problems that are going on. And right now, we're in the midst of another political circus And I'm telling you, there are too many people, especially in the church, that are starting to look to a a man or the government for their hope in order to turn things around. But people, I'm telling you right now, it doesn't matter who is going to be the next president. No man is going to be able to fix what is wrong with this country. There is no law that can be passed, no policy that can be adopted that is going to make America great again. So don't be duped into the thinking that somebody's got the answer for that. And can I tell you something else that may come as a surprise to some of you? Jesus did not die on the cross and raise from the dead for the greatness of the United States of America. He did all that for the greatness of God. I can tell you right now that it just, he might have to allow the greatness of the United States to fall So that his greatness can be seen once again. You okay with that? Would you rather have the greatness of the U.S. or the greatness of God? (laughs) It'd be good to have both. (laughs) We may be past the point of return on that whole deal. I believe that God is beginning to awaken his church once again. And he is drawing people out of their own individually focused lives, drawing them into relationship and purpose and mission with other believers. I'm telling you, when the people of God start coming together for his purpose and his glory, look out. Things start happening. 
You know, for far too long, we've been chasing so hard after the American dream that we've completely forgotten about the big dream that Jesus has for us. Say, what's Jesus' dream? We see it in John chapter 17. That same night that Jesus was with his disciples and he was praying for them. In verse 15, he was praying to the Father and he said, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's me and you. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. His dream for us was that we would be so unified in our enjoyment of him that the rest of the world would see us and go, man, there's something special going on there. There's something powerful inside there. I want to go see that for myself and in doing so come to find Jesus Christ. It's either going to be that or there's going to be so much hatred and vile, vileness just attacked at us. Bring it on. It's going to be good either way. Seven times in the book of Revelation it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I believe the Spirit of God is speaking to churches right now. I believe he's speaking to individuals and calling them out of their self-centered lifestyle back into a life of community, back into a life of family. Not just their natural families, but their spiritual family as well. I'll tell you, those of you who have been living that way, cut off from the rest of the body, just doing your own thing, focused on your own kingdom. And you may be here at Easter today just because it's that time of the year that you come to church just like every year. The only time you ever have any involvement or interaction with God's people is Easter, maybe Christmas too. rest of the time, it's all about you and what you want to do. I want to ask you this morning, how's that working out for you? If I was a betting man, I promise I'd put a whole lot of money on the fact that it's probably not working out too well. Because if you are saved and you have the Spirit of God living in you, He saved you for something bigger than yourself. He saved you to be a part of something special, of something bigger than your own personal kingdom. And if you're not a part of that, and you've got the Spirit of God in you, then your life is out of order. And you're going to see the effects of that. He has given you gifts and abilities that the rest of this family needs. And he paid a high price for you to be a part of something special. And so I encourage you not to take for granted what he bought for you at the cross. There are some of you here today who you've heard the resurrection story of, the Jesus, of Jesus your whole life, and you, you may even believe it. You know that that happened, but you've never really experienced the transformative power of the manifest presence of God living inside of you. How sad it must be, I often think, to God to see us chasing after that big experience, trying to get that big rush, that big emotional high. 
that God created us to desire but is only found in his manifest presence dwelling inside of us. Some chase after it through worldly means. A lot of folks are chasing after it through religious means, trying to conjure up some sort of big supernatural experience or looking to some man for a special blessing or for him to pass on some special anointing that they don't think that they have in Jesus or get touched by them in some powerful way. All the while, God is going, no, you don't get it. You don't have to go somewhere else. You don't have to go to another man. The only man you need to go to is Jesus, and in him, I've given you everything that your heart could ever desire. Every experience that you are so desperately wanting to take part in, it's right inside of you. It's right there. Folks, do we not get it? I don't know if we do. But if your only hope is in Christ alone, then you have the same, the very same presence of God that only the high priest could go near in the Old Testament living inside of you. You have the same presence of God that gave sight to the blind and healed the sick and made the lame walk and caused demons to run screaming living inside of you. The very presence of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Listen to me. You have been given complete authority over everything that you have allowed to have authority over you. And it's time for the people of God to step up into the authority that they have been given in Christ and quit being whipped and allowing other things to have authority over us. I believe this morning that God is saying it's time. It's time for his people to realize what they have in Christ. It's time for his people to come together as one family, one church, one temple, and show the world that God is alive and that he is powerful and that he is in control and that he is their only hope. I'm about to wrap this up. I want to say that there are some of you who are in here this morning the words that I've been saying, there's something going on inside of you. It's like something's starting to wake up a little bit. Something that seems to have been dead for a long time. There's this burning going on inside of you right now. And some of you want so bad the things that I'm saying, but you have a hard time thinking that that's possible for you. You're like, yeah, I I hope that happens, man. I hope the church rises up, and I hope God does great things in the church here. But somehow you have a hard time of seeing you being a part of that because the shame and the guilt of your sin has led you to believe that that's not fully possible for you. I'm telling you right now that Jesus wants to do in you what he did in the temple that day. To come in with his righteous indignation and destroy the chains that have been keeping you in bondage. 
to remove and wash away the lies that have been deceiving you for so long. And I'm telling you, when you come to him and say, Jesus, I need you, he comes in with a devastating and awesome fury like he did in the temple. But his anger is not at you. It's the sin and the lies that have kept you from experiencing what his death purchased for you. He wants you to know the, know the joy that is found in being a son and a daughter of the Father. Some of you have completely lost your joy. You don't remember the last time that you've had joy in your life. And I'm telling you this morning, God wants to restore that back to you. Don't let today be just another annual holiday. Let it be the day, today be the day where the resurrection power of Jesus Christ came more real to you than you ever thought it possible, possibly could. God is here. And he's got something awesome in store for some of you. He's got something awesome in store for this church body. So in just a second, I'm going to pray for us to close this out. And if you're one of those ones that feel that something stirring in you, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you to him. I don't know the details of what he's drawing to you about, but you do. He's opening your eyes to see it. If you're seeing your need for Jesus for the first time, I encourage you to come down here at the front and let some of the leaders that will be on this front row to pray for you so that we can rejoice with you. I'm telling you, I've said it before, repentance is something that we've often mistakenly looked at as something that should be, oh, my gosh, they're repenting. Oh, that's embarrassing. That's, repentance should be something that we celebrate together, that we celebrate. So if we have a celebration party on Easter Sunday of a lot of repentance going on, man, the heavens are going to be shouting, and we're going to be shouting right along with them. However, the Holy Spirit is leading you to respond to him, respond to him. Like I said, the manifest presence of God is in this place because the people of God are in this place. And you can't be indifferent to his manifest presence. So after I pray, we're all going to stand and just sing praises to God. And if you feel like you're one of the ones that God is speaking to you, you come down here and let us pray for you and celebrate with you. But join me in prayer. Jesus, you are so great, so mighty, so awesome. God, we are so undeserving, so undeserving of your grace and your mercy. God, I know so many times I deserve to be the one hanging on that cross. I'm the one who rebelled against God. I'm the one who belittled his name. Claimed his stuff as my own. Put myself above him. You didn't do that. But you took what I deserved. And I thank you for it. I pray that that would come more real to everybody else in here. Holy Spirit, I'm just asking you to come now and do what you do best. Work in hearts, reveal the Son, that we may be forever changed. Would you please come and have your way? 
the remainder of this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.